Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast and today we've got a really special treat. We have with us a refugee from journalism who's now a podcaster, a writer, Kitty Feldy. Kitty, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Esther, thank you so much for having me. It is a very exciting treat to have you and very excited to hear what do these descriptors mean? We always start off though with kind of the origin story of everyone as in how did you get into writing? How did you get up here that you're now a published author of books for kids? How did all this come about? You know, Esther, I think probably I was always writing stories. You know, I'm one of those kids that had a journal and kept writing there. And I can remember getting an invitation from my third grade teacher to do a presentation of a play that I had written all about chipmunks and all this kind of stuff. And I realized halfway through that I didn't know the ending. And interestingly enough, it's a problem that I have still had as a writer. However, many thousands of years later, I always have a hard time with plot. But you learn. I'm a little better at it than I was in third grade. Not a lot better, but a little bit better, I think. And I was a playwright in college, an actor and a playwright. And so I was writing plays because dialogue was really easy. Plot was hard, dialogue was easy, characters were easy. And I did that for a number of years. And then I accidentally fell into public radio and was writing nonfiction, I guess you could say, doing that on a daily basis. My last radio gig was in Washington, D.C. I I started the Washington Bureau for Southern California Public Radio, KPCC, and I was reporting on California in Washington, D.C., Supreme Court cases that were apropos, and most of the time I spent in the U.S. Capitol. And I learned so much. And as a Californian, I had no connection to the U.S. Capitol, really, as a kid, because it was too far away, and I never got that eighth grade trip and all the rest of it. But I felt like I wanted to explain what was going on, and not just how does government work, but also just D.C. is such an odd place compared to Southern California. And I kept telling people these great stories, and after a while... I ran out of people to tell stories to. So I started writing them down for kids. And I don't know why, but I just felt like that was the generation that needed to get excited about governance and democracy and those big words. But they actually meant something to me. And so I started a mystery series based on a a young woman I mentored for many years and all the people I had met in the U.S. Capitol. And that became the Fina Mendoza Mysteries both a series of books and podcasts as well. And in the meantime, also, of course, that wasn't enough for me to do is write kids books. I decided to start a second podcast, which is called Book Club for Kids. And this one is where I go into schools and libraries and I talk to kids in grades, usually five to seven, about a middle grade novel. And then they get questions for the author. I go hunt down the author and ask the author questions. And then we get a celebrity to read a little bit from the book and put it all together. And we've done 136 six episodes so far. So that's my life in a nutshell, Esther. Wow. Okay. Lots of follow-up questions. (laughs) (laughs) Going all the way back, you said you accidentally fell into public radio, assuming you didn't just walk and fall into like a manhole somewhere. And then like, oh, look, public radio. How did that happen? Back in the day, KABC radio had the Dodger games on. And I am a major baseball fan. And they had no female listeners to their sports talk show. And some idiot at the station had this bright idea that, oh, well, if we had a female voice on the air, then of course women would flock to sports talk. Yeah, right. So they had this contest and you had to send in a 
cassette of a monologue on some sports topic. And the men complained, so they opened it up to men as well, and more than 2,000 people sent in entries. And I was one of the 10 finalists. They called me in. It was very cool. I didn't know how to time anything. I had no idea how many words were how many minutes or seconds of time. So I screwed that part of the callback up. But I found that I was really good at interviewing people because that was part of the callback process. They had us interview either Elgin Baylor, the famous basketball veteran, or Steve Yeager's wife. This is how long ago this was when Steve Yeager was the catcher for the Dodgers. And so I'm interviewing her and she's telling me all this stuff that I'm thinking like, you don't tell journalists this stuff, all these things about how the team was treating the wives and all kinds of information. But I found that people trusted me and started telling me things. And I thought, well, if I knew what I was doing, I bet I could actually get a job at this because I was a starving actor at the time. So I took one class in sportscasting thinking I will be the first female sports play-by-play announcer in Major League Baseball. That was going to be my goal. But I discovered right away as I was calling games at Santa Monica City College that I have no depth perception. And so every single fly ball looked like a home run to me. So I thought, okay, this could be a problem. But I could interview sports people. And so that's how I started. It was like this contest led to that. Then I volunteered at KLON, which had a great news department. And it was somebody I'd known from college who said, come in and try out. And I volunteered and I freelanced. And eventually I got hired for 30 years. I was doing public radio reporting. Oh, wow. This all started once you were out of college. This was not, oh, my lifelong dream or something. It was really, oh, there was a contest. Let's try it. Yeah, I was a theater major. So I was a playwright and I was an actor. I was in a lot of commercials. This is the things you'll confess. I did a lot of print work for Virginia Slims back in the day when they would have the old fashioned girl would get caught smoking and then she'd be punished. And then the new liberated woman could smoke wherever the hell she wanted and get lung cancer if she wanted. I was the old fashioned girl, which was great because you got to wear all these really cool outfits from Western costume and they would make you up like it was from the 1900s. It was really fun. So that's pretty much how I supported myself as an actor. That and also collecting rents in a high rise building, all the other day jobs that everybody has. Going into public radio, this was like, oh, public radio, this is actually going to make a living for me. Once you got into the public radio, you sort of learned on the job at that point or do you have to go through any sort of course something to figure it out? Now, this is how long ago this was. This was back in the day when if you were going to edit tape, you taped on a cassette recorder and then you transferred that audio to a reel-to-reel machine and you used a razor blade and grease pencil to mark your cuts. I think now it's just cut and paste and move things around on your computer. But in those days, you actually had to risk your fingers using razor blades to cut tape and glue it back together. So somebody would show you how to do that. But like I said, the only skill I really brought to the job was that I was good at interviewing people. And nobody taught me that. I don't know where that came from. Hey, that's the story side of you, maybe. Right. So how did you end up in Washington? Did radio take you to Washington, D.C.? Or you were in Washington, D.C. And then you just made sure you were still in radio kind of thing? Well, I did a talk show on KPCC for about 10 years. And one of the things I persuaded management to do was send us to Washington for a week of shows. And when we got there, we found there was so much news that the L.A. Times was not covering, nobody else was covering, that was Southern California specific. And I liked it. I had the feeling that as a Southern California girl, this was one city I think I could see myself living in as opposed to Boston or New York or Atlanta or anywhere else. I always had it in the back of my mind that I really would like to work here. So when I stopped doing the talk show and I was just doing general assignment reporting, I kept telling management, you guys need to have a Washington bureau. You guys need to have a Washington bureau. I need to open a Washington bureau for you guys. And eventually they said, okay, okay, get this woman off our back, send her to Washington. So that's what happened. For almost a decade, I covered Capitol 
Hill and I got to sit in the Supreme Court and all those kinds of things. And I think the station got a lot of value out of it as well. I really liked Washington and I still go back a couple of times a year to tape book club episodes. I don't know if you said it specifically that you're kind of writing nonfiction. So if you do a radio yeah. segment, you actually sat down to write whatever you speak about or you're just talking about the way you'd have to collect information and structure it to give it over, on, so over the radio. So you have to actually write news stories. The way you do it is you are interviewing somebody and you're listening for that soundbite, the great little bit of information that you'll remember for weeks afterwards. And you kind of write your story around that. And if you think about it, that's like writing dialogue. I'm not writing it. I'm collecting dialogue, in other words, from the people I'm interviewing and then writing around that, going from point to point to point. So that's how you do public radio journalism. Was it weird to switch from sports to politics? Or was it just talking to people or just have a different subject? Or was it, wow, this is a different world? Well, the big transition was from sports to what they call hard news. And you have to remember, this was in the 80s when there really weren't a lot of women doing sports reporting. And I always remember going to a morning press conference for the Lakers. And I show up and there were Laker girls and beer. And I thought, oh, this is not for me. This is for the guys. And you found yourself the only woman. The Dodgers never let women into the dressing rooms at that point in time. I remember going to Chicago. The Dodgers were playing there and I was going to do a little story and Chicago let women into the locker room. So I went in and the minute I walked in the door, four guys dropped their towels and said, oh, look who's here. And I thought, you know, a bunch of jerks. The first hard news story I covered was a fire. And when I got there, the firemen treated me like I was a genuine human being and not a bimbo. And I thought, wow, it's because women had broken down those barriers to hard news years before I got into the business. And I thought, you know, this is a lot more fun. And so that's what I did. I didn't want to keep beating my head against the wall in the world of sports because it was obvious they didn't want me there. And why do it if it isn't fun anymore? Yeah, that's true. You're also dealing, there's a difference between people who are going out there and saving people versus people who are going out there and playing a game. I'm happy for everybody to do whatever they want. It is kind of a different yeah, feel. Definitely. So that already switched you over. So at that point, it was, it made sense to be doing more of any of like the quote unquote nonfiction kind of news stories. Exactly. And because it was public radio, there's also this whole thing about you have to gather ambient sound. You want to take people places. And in a lot of ways, you frame a story around a person so that you can talk about complicated policy issue kinds of stories, but you see it through a person's eyes. And in some ways, that is pure storytelling. I did a multi-part series about the Dodgers move to Los Angeles from the LA's point of view rather than Brooklyn's point of view. And I did another series about immigration reform through the eyes of a couple that were trying to get all their paperwork together and pass the tests and all the rest of that stuff. In many ways, if you look at it, that's classic story structure. Beginning, middle, rising action, conflict, climax, denouement. All that stuff should be in there. So it really wasn't that much of a leap. It's just that you were doing less tape collecting and more sitting down staring at a computer screen. Well, you know you're covering California politics, Southern California stories, so you sort of have a framework that you're working within. But after that, was it just, okay, wait for the new story to come up and then we'll figure something out? Or, oh, that person's interesting. What's their connection? Uh, start with a person, you start with a story, and then you have to find the person, both, everything at the same time. 
Well, because it's news and it's, as they say, hard news, what I often was looking for was the local angle on a national story or somebody's reaction to something that was happening back in California. It can't just be puppies and butterflies. There should be some substance to it. So that's always what you're looking for. But I wasn't the kind of reporter that would dig through piles of statistics and reports and things like that. That just wasn't what I did. I would just sort of listen in a lot of ways. Like, for example, one time on Capitol Hill, it was during the Me Too era when it was just happening, I found out just from talking to somebody that the House of Representatives did not have any kind of training courses to avoid being harassed by your boss. I mean, it just wasn't done. It was just like so shocking. And I found that out, reported on it. And one of the members of Congress actually introduced a bill to try to mandate that kind of training for people. So you think, yeah, good for us. We actually accomplished something today. Reporting on the hard news story, I guess it probably depends on the story, but how much of it is just tell people about this versus like, we want to tell people about this so that something will be done about it. I think it's a little of both. I really do. And the thing that I found was that a lot of the times what I was reporting on, I wanted to do more with. So for example, that story I told you about the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles, I wrote a play about it. It's a musical about the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles because I wanted to take it further. I created new characters. I created characters based on other people. I covered war crimes trials. I did a lot of trial work in the 90s, including Rodney King, the beating case, and OJ as well. But after I did that, because I didn't want to do OJ2, I had heard that people from Court TV were going over to Europe to cover the war crimes tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And I thought, gosh, I was too young for Nuremberg, but here's really the first time in my lifetime to really see the trial of the century. The first time we're really holding individuals responsible for war crimes since the Second World War. And one of the stories from that tribunal It followed me home. When I came back from Holland, I was still having thoughts and nightmares about this one guy's story. You know, his story became a play called A Patch of Earth. And that play is actually taught in high schools and colleges around the country because it's the story of a guy who, he was kind of an idiot 20-something-year-old. He served in every army and he kept leaving because they treated him mean or he missed his mom's cooking. He was smuggling refugees across the border and then he got caught. So he was told he had to join the Bosnian Serb army and then suddenly he found himself at Srebrenica and told to like shoot people and he says I don't want to and they said well then when you can go up there and we'll shoot you and then we're going back to the village and we're killing your wife and kid so what do you do what if that was me what would I do and the guy felt guilty about it and he eventually talked to the news media his former mates shot him in the stomach he almost died there and then he came before the tribunal and because of him really we knew about the massacre at Srebrenica otherwise we wouldn't have known so what's justice This guy confessed to killing more than 70 of the 1,200 people killed in the cornfield that afternoon. He's a mass murderer, but he also told the world about what was going on. So what's a fair judgment? How long should he serve in prison? So those kinds of questions created, in my mind, a really good seed for creating something else out of it, a creative thing out of it, a a drama in in this particular case. So it seems like since third grade, you keep reverting back to writing plays. Because you mentioned that twice with the daughter story and with this story, that you went back to the stage. Exactly. That's where my real writing was, being an actor and actually writing plays. The theater was my first love. But after a while, you discover that you need to have more than one person involved with a play. You need to have a theater company that will produce it, a director and actors. And while I love being in a rehearsal room with actors, there's a lot of personnel and a lot of expense with getting a play up and running. And after a while, you write two or three plays that aren't getting picked up. You know, it's disappointing and you want to have more control over your creative work. So 
writing books was like you get to be the boss of everything. You get to cast it, you get to direct it, you can design the sets, all that kind of stuff by putting it down on paper. So it's much more satisfying in a lot of ways. That's true. When you did decide that you were going to write the books that you've got, why did you decide that it was going to be a mystery series? Even though you said young kids, you could have done young adult, but you, you kind of ended up in the middle grade category. How did those things come about? Well, Esther, I always believe that inside of us, we are a, another age. We carry that one age around with us. And I think inside of me, I'm about 12 in a lot of ways. I just see the world from that kind of point of view. When I started the Book Club for Kids podcast, that was kind of the age group I was hanging around with. I liked the way that kids think at that age. They're starting to feel a little bit of freedom from their parents, but the hormones haven't hit yet. They know a lot of stuff, and if only an adult would ask them the right questions, they would be able to tell them all kinds of interesting things. So that was the person I really wanted to write for. That age me. The character's not me, but that was the audience that I was looking for. And I I was a little nervous about writing for grown-ups because I didn't, I had never written fiction before. I, I didn't really know what to do with the descriptions. I wasn't quite sure of the grammar. My gosh, you know, I, it had been fifth grade since the last time I thought about grammar. For radio, you don't even have to spell things correctly. Well, at least until the internet came and then they wanted things spelled correctly. But if you're writing a script, it's just you. You don't care if you misspell niece. Who cares? So suddenly there were all these rules and I was a little nervous and I thought, well, at least if I'm writing for kids, they aren't quite as judgmental. That's not true, but that's what I thought as adults when it comes to books. So that's how come I stumbled into writing for that audience. The book club podcast came first before the books? About the same time. On my radio show a million years ago, once a month we would kick the adults out and invite kids into the studio and we would discuss a middle grade novel. So when I left journalism, I thought, oh, I always loved doing that. I wonder if I could do it now. Oh, of course I could because the technology's changed. Podcasts are here. So I will do that. So I started that in 2015. And about that time, I started writing also for kids. I really started writing about my Washington experience in the Fina Mendoza mystery. And then once that was published, I thought, well, oh gosh, I could do an audio drama based on the books. Maybe it'd be good for marketing and wouldn't it be fun? And it was a little bit like theater, except you didn't need the scenery. It was a little like a public radio story in the way that we did it because we would tape in places that sounded like the bowels of the U.S. Capitol. We found a nice echoey place to tape those. Or we were outside getting that sound of cars and stuff for the street scenes and, and things like that. So it, in many ways, it just comes full circle. We're all back at the beginning again. Right. That's also kind of funny that you're saying that because you're like, I didn't want to write for adults, but you were writing plays. Were they not for older audiences? Most of them. I mean, I've written a couple of plays for kids, but yeah, you're right. Most of my theater stuff was a little more mature than what I'm writing now. I guess you didn't see the crossover between if I could write theater for adults, I could write a book for adults. The thing that scared me though, Esther, was in theater, I knew how to write that. It's all dialogue and description of, you know, action. But I didn't know how much dialogue is allowed or can be included. I mean, if I were Roddy Doyle, I could write the whole book in dialogue. But, you know, I'm not Roddy Doyle. So I, I, I had to learn how to do it. So you just felt more comfortable learning how to do that for kids. I did. As I said, I was an idiot thinking, oh, they'll be less judgmental than grown-ups," But that wasn't quite true. The book club podcast, you say you meet with authors and you'll interview them in schools, kind of like a live interview. Well, that's the way it sounds, but it's trickery. It's all magic and smoke and mirrors. So the way it works is I do go into schools and libraries and I talk to kids. We start with a book and just like your book club, although we do it without alcohol, the conversation makes a left turn. And so we follow that trail to see what the kids really want to talk about. That takes about half an hour. And before I leave, I ask the kids, do you have any questions for the author? 
And so they ask their questions. And then I find the author or my producer finds the author. The way we do it technically is we chat on Zoom, but we have the author record themselves on the voice memo app of their phone. So I pose the questions the kids have asked. They answer them. They email me the audio. And then we go out and find a celebrity reader and give them a couple of pages from the book. They record themselves. They send me the audio. And then I put it all together. And it sounds like we're all in the same room or sort of sounds that way anyway. The authors that you end up interviewing, it's just according to whatever the kids suggest that they want to hear from, or you have a list, something that yeah. you follow? Yeah. So what happened back in the day when I was doing it on radio, I would pick the books, but that ends up being all the books that I liked. We all have different tastes in what we like to read. And this is better because now it's what do the kids want to talk about? What's the book they get excited about? We've done a lot of graphic novels. We've done a lot of the problem books. We've done a lot of fantasy. You just name it. We've done a little bit of every, sometimes historical novels, you know, whatever the kids really want to talk about. Those are the books we talk about. So I am out of the book picking business. That's something now that I leave to the kids and either their teacher or librarian. You have to figure it all out before you're there. It's not just something that like, okay, now they spoke about book. Okay. So they pick the book, they read the book, they get prepared. I show up with a microphone. Now that said, we also do public events. So I'll go to like maker fairs or book festivals and show up with my mic. And then I just do our universal question. And I'll ask you this question too, Esther, but it's the hardest question on planet earth. We ask them, what's the name of your favorite book and why do you love it? So what's the name of your favorite book and what do you love it? Oh, I I don't answer that question. Because I'm the person who, my answer is always depends. So there's, I like this book for this. I like this book for that. I don't have only one. I don't. A lot of kids tell me that too. And then I say, okay, then what's the book that you think I need to read next? Well, see, but that would depend on who I was talking to. (laughs) (laughs) I would tell you according to what I know your taste to be. And that would be a different answer according to who I was speaking with. Okay. All right. It's a good question. I'm I'm impossible. It's a hard, hard question. Sometimes people think that we say, what's your favorite? They think that they're bound to it like for forever. And it's, it could be whatever book you're into right now. And it's okay if you're into another book later, you're allowed to have more, but you could change it. Exactly. Well, so when you wrote your first novel, what happened next? You go to agents to try to get it out and to make your publishing or what you said after your theater experience, you're like, I want to find a place that I could keep most of the creative control over it. Did you go to something and people were like, no, rewrite this whole thing. How did that part? actually well, actual publishing. I'd been a member of SCBWI for a number of years, and I went to a lot of conferences, either both regional and then the national conferences. But somebody had told me about Rutgers One-on-One, which was an extremely great experience. It's basically just one long day in Rutgers, New Jersey at the university where they match you up one-on-one with either an editor or an agent, and then you go into a larger group discussion with five other people, and then you get to meet six other professionals in the business. And then at lunch, you go down and track down the person you didn't get a chance to meet. And because of that, I got an agent who then shopped the book around on the East Coast. But I made a really stupid mistake. I didn't plan this, but my main character was inspired by a kid I had mentored many years ago, and her name was Fina. And I named the kid Fina. She comes from a Southern California Latino family. Now, I have a multicultural background. I have brothers and nephews and everybody who's every ethnic group on planet Earth, four adopted siblings. It's a multicultural family. But because I am not, New York didn't want to touch it. That was the feedback I got. And the feedback was, go back and write a book in your own culture. And it's like, well, okay, but actually, I live in Southern California. 
company. This is my culture. But they didn't want to touch it. So I ended up and I thought, well, you know, I still believe in the book. I think that maybe if I could find a smaller publisher in the West. And when I wrote it, there were so few books that had protagonists that were Latina. There really weren't that many. And there's a need for it. So I found a small publisher out of Texas and they published the book first. But after two years, it just wasn't a great relationship. And I took back the rights. I decided I'm just going to do this. I'm going to publish this myself. I'm going to actually going to do more than that. I'm going to create a publishing company that looks at civics related materials for kids in grades K through eight. So that's what I did. I created a publishing company. I think it's two years now, Chesapeake Press. And they publish not only my books, they also publish a teacher's guide written by a woman who used to be the head of the School Librarians Association of Hawaii, where we've got books in the works, a picture book called ABC Democracy, and another book on citizenship. So it just kind of grew from there. Was I, I just felt so strongly. The idea that everybody hates each other right now in politics. And if that's the case, how are kids going to get excited about carrying on American democracy. I mean, it may not be perfect, but it's all we got. And if everybody's tuned out and angry and everything else and want to tear down everything that's there, we're in trouble. So that's the mission for Chesapeake Press, is to really get kids excited about public service, thinking about their role in American democracy, taking action, giving them empowerment, all that kind of stuff. So it's a kind of a long and weird and windy road, Esther. It makes absolutely no sense at all. It looks like one of those treasure maps that curve and come back on themselves and never seem to go in a straight line. That kind of describes my entire writing career. I could see the thread. But Chesapeake Press, what's your part in it right now? You set it up, but you have other people who are taking care part of the day-to-day of it? I have a creative director who I work with. I have a, I guess, personal assistant, someone who's handling a lot of the data stuff for us right now. We hired somebody to handle the cover art illustration. These days, because of Fiverr, you can pretty much hire people to do the day-to-day little stuff because you don't need somebody full-time. We're not putting out like 25 books a year, but we are open for submissions. So if anybody has fiction or nonfiction, civics-related book, Chesapeake Press is very happy to take a look at pitches and manuscripts and all the information's on the website. It's chesapeakepress.org. Amazing. When you tell people you've got, let's say, the Chesapeake Press, are they like, oh, you're a self-publisher? And you're like, no, (laughs) I started a press. It's not the same thing. What I did, Esther, was we have a different persona. You know what I mean? I'm Kitty Feldy, the writer. And actually, it's so interesting because then I write like my own voice. But when I deal with Chesapeake Press, it's Marie Daly who handles that. And she writes a newsletter about facts behind the fiction in Fina Mendoza. So it's a lot of information about the State of the Union address and the Capitol Christmas tree and voting laws, things like that. All of that stuff is on the website. And it's interesting because I think anyway, the writing style is so different. Marie writes differently than I do. She just has a different voice. That's how I look at it, is that there is a Marie Daly who handles that sort of day-to-day stuff with Chesapeake Press. And she lets Kitty Feldy sit down at her laptop and work on the third Fina book. Just also I guess from a technical thing from the press, any submission that comes through, does it also go through you? Or you're not necessarily involved in every single aspect in that regard? Right now, it does go through me. I don't know how long that'll last, but right now I take a look at submissions. That's great. Some people, sometimes when it's a very focused, they get a little bit like, oh, why are you only publishing this? And it's like, but on the other hand, it's very focused. Yeah, it's a real specific niche. Let's leave it at that. Because that means it, it found its place. We know who we're catering to. We know what we want to do. And that's... Exactly. It's resonated in interesting places because we've gotten bipartisan support from Capitol Hill. I mean, I get blurbs from Republican 
Republicans and Democrats both. And I've been getting letters from Sonia Sotomayor about the importance of civics education. So, I mean, I feel like, yeah, okay, we're on the right track here. This is something that people see as a need. So yeah, we'll keep doing this. Great. You're on the third book now, you said, from your series? Yes, finally. I've gotten back to the third book. I took a little break because I kind of played hooky with Fina because I wanted to write. One of the things I've written a lot about in my playwriting days was about the Theodore Roosevelt family. I got a commission to write, believe it or not, it was a tour around the White House neighborhood in the person of Theodore Roosevelt's youngest son, Quentin. And then years before, I had written a one-woman show about Alice Roosevelt Longworth, the woman who was most famous for saying, if you don't have anything nice to say about someone, come and sit by me. She was kind of the Kim Kardashian of her day. She was famous for being famous. She was gorgeous. She was in the newspaper all the time. She smoked in public. She drove race cars. I mean, you know, just you name it, she was doing it. And I finished the first draft of an Alice Roosevelt murder mystery series that I am working on right now. Also, you went back to the mystery series. Yeah, I like mysteries. I got hooked on mysteries. I love them because they have a format you have to follow. And I'm not a puzzle person. I'm not a putting in all the clues and tricking up the audience and all that kind of stuff. It's much more character driven. And she's such a wonderful character. It's just like, yeah, take me wherever you want to go, Alice. I'm ready to go. For the middle grade one, the Fina Mendoza ones, yeah. you said part of it is just kind of your experiences or the stories that you've got from your time in DC. But it's part of it, okay, there's a certain aspect of, I guess you could say, civics that I want the kids to pick yes. up. And that's what the mystery will be based somewhere around there. Well, or like, how do you structure that? It's much more sneaky than that. The Fina mysteries are really a family story. Mom has passed away recently. The kids moved to DC to live with dad full time. Grandma's supposed to come and take care of them. She falls off a bar stool at the Indian Casino playing blackjack and breaks her leg. So the kids get a little more freedom running around Capitol Hill without adult supervision. And because of that, it's just one thing leads to another. Fina walks a congressional dog, members of Congress. This is like stuff they don't, who knew this? In the House office buildings, there's dogs in the hallways. There's dogs in people's offices. A lot of people bring their dogs to work. I mean, who knew that? So Fina gets a job after school walking dogs. So the little stuff that I observed that people don't write about in Politico or The Hill or any of the newspapers on in Washington because they just sort of take it for granted. But to somebody from California who suddenly finds themselves in that environment, it's like, this is weird. I want to write about this. And the first book is about the demon cat of Capitol Hill. And that is a legend that they tell every year at Halloween time about how the U.S. Capitol is haunted by this cat that if you see it, it grows to the size of a Mini Cooper. Its eyes are glowing. It's hissing and spitting. And you are cursed with bad luck the rest of your life. That means if you're a politician, you lose your election. But supposedly somebody saw it before the stock market crash and before Kennedy was shot and all this kind of stuff. Oh, and there's footprints. There's cat paw prints in the concrete in the crypt of the U.S. Capitol. So there was a cat there at some point in time. So I found out what's the real story, that it comes out. But we also, in the book, as Fina is in that environment, her father is on the rules committee in the first book. And so she's watching how amendments get it added to bills. She watched just the behavior on the House floor when they're voting. How do they actually physically vote with their little plastic card? Things like that, that you're explaining, you're trying to create an accurate picture. And through that, other stuff comes up. So in the second book, Congress is working on immigration reform with their gang of eight. Things like that, with the protests out in front. It isn't like I'm deliberately thinking, okay, let's see, in this book, I'm going to be discussing the balanced budget. That isn't quite what happens. We're following Fina, and she stumbles upon all of these things things going on in Congress. And we see her interpretation. So for example, we're coming up on February 7th to the State of the Union address. Well, what's the State of the Union address? And Fina's father has been asked to give the rebuttal speech in Spanish. So we talk about the history 
of the rebuttal speech. So, you know, here you've got all of this stuff you can add because it helps explain what's going on in the story, which is all we really care about. Right. What's kind of your consideration of incorporating real characters as in modern real characters versus just George Washington kind of characters? So most of the members of Congress... I'm trying to think if I actually use any of the real ones. No, all the characters who are members of Congress are fictional. They're based on real people or they're inspired by real people, but partially because members of Congress in the House have to run for election every two years. So I could write about somebody and they could have been defeated in a primary two years ago before the book comes out. So I don't do that. But Sonia Sotomayor is mentioned in the book. I don't mention the name of the president, except that sort of described his hair as looking like a bird's nest. So people could maybe figure out who that was, but I'm trying to make them so they're lasting, that they're not just stuck in a particular period of time. That makes sense. And then the mystery she's going on. Okay, so we said the cat. So like the second book, what kind of mystery? Well, for some reason, I've gotten into this animal thing. So the second book, it's a bird that poops on the president's head during the State of the Union address. So we're going in search of that bird. And it's possible that it might be Chicharney, which is a mythical bird from the Caribbean that delivers messages. Fina's trying to find out the message. The third book I'm working on, it's called Snake in the Grass. And it's about the bitter partisanship that's going on, particularly right now in Washington, D.C. Of course, there's snakes in that one. Not my favorite animal, but yes, there are lots of snakes in that one. And then I don't know what there's going to be for four and five. I do know where they're going to be, and I kind of know what's going to happen. You know, I really want to cover an election, so that's going to be coming up. Yeah, so I'm kind of looking forward to it. So it's like a slight supernatural thing to to add these sort of mythical animals? Well, I wouldn't say it's fantasy. I think when you're a kid, you want to believe there's real magic in the world and you look for it. And I think that Fina's looking for it, but at least not in spoiler alert here, the cat's an actual cat. In my story, we hear all of the myths that are out there and then we find out it's an actual cat. And in the bird one, it's probably, it's a, it's, all right, give it away. It's a burrowing owl that somehow ended up in Washington, D.C. She solves the mystery, but it's not unicorn. There's no unicorns in my book. You just said four or five, so it sounds like you've got a plan for it to be a five-book series. Yes. What I've done is I've divided it into seasons. So book one's in the fall, then we have the winter, spring, summer, and then the next fall will be the election year, the fall election. Yeah, so I've got that in my head. I think five books is plenty. Unless, of course, it gets bought by Netflix, and then who knows? I'm willing to go on seven seasons, eight seasons, no problem. Oh, sounds like a plan. Okay. Yeah. Anybody object? No. See, nobody said anything. Perfect. On that happy note, we have an excellent plan here. Thank you very much, Esther. Yes, that's exactly the plan. We're in agreement, so who else do we need? I'm on the internet. If anybody wants to find me and you're going to give me an offer, I'm here. I'm willing to listen. Sounds good. There's nothing to really follow up on that, but we do always wrap up with a film a blank of I really like it when. I really like it when writers, editors, publishers, books, covers librarians, whatever, anything storytelling relating, you using anyone. I really like it when X and I really don't like X. Talk about hard questions, Esther. This one's really hard. You know that. Well, it's like, it could be your off-the-cuff answer. It doesn't have to be your... You can say depends. <laughs> All right, I really like it when my friends get published. It's so easy to feel jealous about stuff, so easy to feel envious that somebody else is doing it. And I thought I'd feel that when I was a writer. But actually, I wouldn't say it's as exciting as when something of my own is published, but it's sure close. I'm thrilled for them. And it excites me to go into a bookstore and see their book on the bookshelf. It's great. So in many ways, we're lucky as writers that we get to share. We don't have to do it all ourselves. We get to share in the joy when we see our our friends' books up there on the bookshelves. And let's see, the thing I hate, well, I 
I hate rejection letters. I mean, that's obvious. I just hate it. Don't like it when someone says no. <laughs> I didn't like it when I was a kid. I don't like it now. You said these are difficult questions and you gave two excellent answers. Thank God something dropped into my head there because it is a hard question. Side question, I didn't ask you, but for your press, what do you guys do for distribution? You know, it's interesting. We signed with IPG and we feel really lucky to be with them, Independent Publishers Group. And I was introduced to them. This is one of those weird stories. I was recommended to them by a gentleman, Robert Rosenwald, who used to run Poison Pen Press. Now, they publish mysteries. His wife has the famous bookstore in Scottsdale where Diana Gabaldon, it's her home bookstore. But they mostly do mysteries. And I ran into Robert at a Miss Fisher convention, which I go to every year. He was there because they were the American publishers of the Miss Fisher mysteries, which are out of Australia. And when I was starting Chesapeake Press, I really wanted some professional advice. And because he had run a small press company, I said, do you have time for coffee? Of course. I was in Scottsdale. We had coffee. And he got really excited about the idea of Chesapeake Press. And he said, you know, it's not only an important idea, I think you can make some money at this. And let me tell you who you need to talk to. And so he gave me, you know, a whole laundry list of people to email and to have conversations with. And one of them was the people from IPG. And IPG is now our distributor. So it's great. They take care of all the hard stuff of getting it into bookstores, et cetera, et cetera, into schools and gift shops and things like that. That also means that anybody who sells books, people can look you up. You should be there. Yep, I should be there. Yep. And the new book is coming out soon, July. They're doing a reissue of the first book, Welcome to Washington, Fina Mendoza, with a brand new cover. And then State of the Union is out there right now with the old cover, but it'll have a new cover coming up soon too. Free brand. Very nice. I know. Oh, and by the way, A Patch of Earth, we have a brand new cover for that. I just saw it today and it's good and creepy. The first one was just too bland because I thought, oh, this is a play about war crimes. We're going to have something a little bit more graphic. So it's not graphic. It's more like a thriller than like play cover, which is pretty boring and blank. So that one's out now too. Good stuff going on. Katie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was so much fun to speak with you. Oh, Esther, it's great to talk to you again too. Thank you so much for having me. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring podcaster and author Kitty Feldman. To find out more about Kitty and her work, please visit the link in the episode notes. Find out more about Oh My Word podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Podcast or check us out at eltenabound.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.